Hey, it's Jen. Just a quick heads up before we start the show. The news is rapidly developing and things may have changed by the time you hear this episode. For the latest news, tune into your public radio station and follow updates at npr.org. This is the 1A Podcast. I'm Nyla Boodoo of Axios Today, in for Jen White, and you're listening to the News Roundup. From Des Moines... I saw you under attack! What do we do? Stand up, fight back! To Dallas... My body! My choice! My body! My choice! To Washington, D.C. We won't We won't Thousands gathered in cities and towns across America to protest a Supreme Court draft opinion that promises to wipe out Roe v. Wade. It's the culmination of more than four decades of Republican strategy. And while it's just a draft, experts say it's unlikely the justices will substantially change their minds or their votes by the end of June. So what can Democratic lawmakers and the president do about it? And how will this affect voters during the midterms? Let's jump right in. Mary Harris hosts the Slate Daily News podcast, What's Next? Mary, welcome. Hey, Nyla. Nice to be here. Eva McKend is a national politics reporter for CNN. Hi, Eva. Hi. Thanks for having me. And Shafali Luthra is a healthcare reporter with The 19th. Shafali, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. For those who haven't gotten up to speed, Shafali, can we just start with what's the highlights of this leaked draft? Sure. So this comes from a case known as Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization. And the Supreme Court had been asked to look at this abortion ban from Mississippi, which would have banned abortion 15 weeks onward. Now, this is well before what Roe v. Wade guarantees, right? The promise from that decision was you could have the right to an abortion up until a fetus is independently viable. It can live outside the womb on its own, which happens usually around 22 to 25 weeks. So this was a direct challenge to Roe v. Wade, and that's exactly how the court has treated it. And in this draft decision written right by Justice Alito, they're very clear. They uphold the Mississippi law and they strike down Roe. And what that would mean is individual states have the power to regulate abortion, to ban it if they so to choose or to heavily restrict it. And we know that right, more than a dozen states are ready to do just that if this is what the decision is. It's worth noting this is a draft. Mary, how likely is this to change substantially between now and the end of next month? It's hard to know. But um, I think what we know from this is that there was a vote count after this argument was made in the Mississippi case. And the thing about this Mississippi case is that there was an obvious compromise on the table that John Roberts was actually advocating for when this was argued. The compromise would have been, let's move the goalposts and say 15 weeks of pregnancy is the new line, and that's where we're going to allow you to ban abortions after. And he was kind of trying to see, see if his fellow justices would join him with that kind of an opinion during the oral arguments. And this implies that they will not, because afterwards they took a vote and what they decided was actually we should be overturning Roe completely. So I think that's the indication we have here. That's what we know. It's, it's notable that this is from February. So this is from a while back, and this opens up a process where the justices go back and forth. They say, hey, I don't like that language. Could you tweak that? Could you, um, you know, roll that back a little bit? I want to add this here. But this seems to be the basis that they're working off of. And so that makes it a little less likely that this is going to go through some momentous change. Although, of course, that's always possible. 
Now, the thousands of people that we heard protesting are concerned with the contents of the leak, but Republicans in the court itself are focused on how this leak happened at all. Eva, Chief Justice John Roberts has instructed the Supreme Court marshal to investigate. How unprecedented is a leak like this? It is truly unprecedented. I believe the last time it happened might have been back in the 1970s. So it's not too often that we get a leak of this magnitude. Uh, Chief Justice John Roberts is not saying much about how this investigation will unfold. And you mentioned Republicans being fixated on this. That has actually been the other surprise of the week to see Republicans who have championed this for so long sort of give kind of a lukewarm uh, reception to the fact that this uh, very well could be overturned when they've been championing it for so many years, um, indicating that they actually might be concerned about the political consequences. Right. Actually, let's hear Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell on Tuesday quick to slam the leak of the document on the Senate floor. Historically, the justices, clerks, and staff have prized and protected the court's confidentiality. The justices must be able to discuss and deliberate in an environment of total trust and privacy. Eva, I just wanted to pick up on what you said about Republicans and the political consequences. What are we thinking from the GOP? What are we hearing from them this week about this? Well, their argument was that the leak compromised the court, and many are suggesting that it was maybe a liberal court clerk, but we don't know that. It could have been a conservative who leaked the document who wanted to soften the blow of what might be coming in the weeks ahead. So we just have no idea. But I just found this fixation on that kind of curious. Uh, They have... uh, what conservatives have characterized as the unborn have been advocating for that uh, position for many years. And this has injected a new shot of life, I think, into the Democratic Party. I was there on Monday night when uh, hundreds of people started to gather. First, the mood was somber, and then it shifted to real anger. And that anger might translate to Democratic votes in November. So I think that uh, Republicans, you know, finally are getting what they um, getting what they asked for. But uh, politically, it, it doesn't seem like it, it will be a winning issue. We'll have to see. According to the draft opinion, five justices have decided to overturn Roe. That's led to a lot of scrutiny comparing to what they said to get confirmed with the arguments used to throw out the landmark ruling. Mary, how does this decision square with past justices on the record statements? Well, it's interesting. There's been this back and forth, right? Like, did the justices mislead senators somehow in their confirmation hearings? Now, when I look back, my take is no, not really, because everyone knew where these justices stood when it came to abortion. And the kind of things they said in their confirmation hearings were, yes, this is precedent. Yes, I would treat it the same way I treat other precedents. Now, when we look at Alito's opinion here, he's basically saying, yes, this is a precedent, but sometimes these precedents are so egregious, they require correction. I think it's notable to me that when you look back at Amy Coney Barrett's confirmation hearing, she was asked, is this super precedent? Is Roe super precedent? Meaning you just, you can't overturn it. It's so accepted, right? 
And she said no to that. That was a tip of the hand of where this was going. So I think it's a little disingenuous to say that they somehow lied when they were in front of the confirmation panel, because it's not what happened. So, I mean, I guess that's that's my take there. We've always known where these judges stood. And frankly, when you have a confirmation process where you are looking to confirm someone for a lifetime appointment and you demand them to twist themselves into a pretzel and pretend they're completely neutral, you're not going to get good answers out of them. You're not going to get anything that would actually be useful. But you can see in that Amy Coney Barrett answer how she actually did give something quite useful, but it just wasn't, you know, yeah, I'm going to overturn that. Shafali, you mentioned uh, about the trigger laws that could take place in different states. I wonder if you can walk us through what an overturned row would mean on a state-by-state basis when there's also nearly half of all U.S. states have legislation either in place or pending that would get rid of abortion in some form. But how is that different than the trigger laws people have been hearing about? So there are 13 states that right now have laws that they've already passed that say in writing, if Roe is overturned, we will ban abortion. Now, the mechanisms vary a little bit, right? Some require the attorney general to certify it. Some require the governor or a legislative council. Some might take 30 days. But I was talking yesterday to an attorney from Americans United for Life, right, the premier anti-abortion lobbying group. And their take is this language is really clear. And if it is this clear in the final draft, then it will be very easy for those 13 states to, to look at that opinion and to ban abortion immediately or within 30 days. And then separately, right, we do have these five states that don't have trigger laws, but before Roe was over was handed down, they they had laws on the books that did ban abortion, right? Those are a little bit more complicated. Some of them may be enforced, but some of these date back to like the 1850s, and we don't really have a good history of seeing laws that are that old and that were not enforced being newly enforced. So the takeaway there, right, is that we have these 13 states that are prepared to ban abortion entirely, virtually right away. And then we have five more where where they could, but the legal questions are really complicated. And already a couple of state governors in Arizona and in Michigan are challenging whether that will actually be the case. And the answer is more legal battles. And what did we see this week in reaction from states to this leaked draft? We are seeing a lot of energy in the anti-abortion movement. There is questions about whether and when these Republican-led states might call special sessions to pass more abortion bans. That's the case in Indiana right now. Many Republicans are calling on the governor to call them back into the legislature after the decision comes down so that they can, in fact, pass a trigger ban. There's similar pressure in Nebraska. In Florida, there is going to be a special session already, but it's focused on insurance. And you're starting to see some anti-abortion voices there as well put pressure on Governor DeSantis to add abortion to the list of priorities for the state. We'll be back with more of the News Roundup. Remember to join future conversations, download our 1A Vox Pop app, and leave us a voicemail. This message comes from NPR sponsor BetterHelp. Stress shows up in all kinds of ways. In a world that's telling you to do more, sleep less, and grind all the time, here's your reminder to take care of yourself, do less, and maybe try some therapy. BetterHelp is committed to helping you in times of stress with customized online therapy. Get 10% off your first month at BetterHelp.com 1A and see if it helps life feel a little bit easier. 
We're rounding up some of the week's biggest headlines. Let's get back to the conversation. Shafali, on Monday, Amazon said it would cover up to $4,000 in travel expenses for workers seeking medical care, including elective abortions. What else did we hear from corporate America this week? So Amazon is absolutely the big one. We saw from Levi's as well, right? They put out this really thorough statement talking about the importance of reproductive rights as a company value and promising as well to pay for the travel of their employees who need to go out of state to seek abortion. And this is really going to be very important because, as we've seen, there isn't really much that we are beginning to hear about from the White House or Congress, and corporate America is really being called on to fill in the gaps, right, to to make sure that folks who are in these states that have abortion bans will be able to access it. I do think what's interesting about this, though, is that many folks who seek abortions right, are lower income. They may not be employed by these companies. They may not have health insurance. For many of them, the costs, right, even the, the $20 to get a bus ticket might be too much. And so these are really interesting sort of stop gaps, patchworks to, to fill in the access gap that is going to appear. But what they don't speak to is everyone else who will be left behind. To your point about the politics of this, Senate Democrats are responding to the leaked Supreme Court draft opinion with a symbolic vote. Now that the court is poised to strike down Roe, it is my intention for the Senate to hold a vote on legislation to codify the right to an abortion in law. That's Democratic Senator Chuck Schumer speaking on Tuesday morning. Mary, Schumer emphasized this vote isn't an abstract exercise and is, quote, as urgent and as real as it gets. How accurate is that? I mean, is it, though? <laughs> like, I I just, I don't know that I can say that it isn't symbolic. That's That's what it is. It reminds me a lot of what happened back in January, where we saw a lot of energy around voting rights from folks in Congress, from Senator Schumer himself, and another talk about a symbolic vote about voting rights. And I just don't know that those symbolic votes are doing what the Democrats want them to do. What you saw back in January was when Schumer was talking about a symbolic vote when it came to voting rights. You saw advocates in Georgia basically give him the hand and say, you know, that's not enough. We need you to take more action here and not do this symbolism for us because that's not getting us what we need. So I, I think... I think the Democrats are going to have a real problem if all they can do is the symbolic stuff. Eva, why is this just a symbolic vote on behalf of the Senate? Well, it's it's what we call here in Washington a show vote because he doesn't have the votes to actually advance the legislation. So it is the definition of a show vote. It's not going to change anything. And there is deep frustration from Democrats at the state level with this. We heard Governor Gavin Newsom in California say, where is my party? Uh, Sarah Godlewski, she's running for Senate in Wisconsin. She happened to be in Washington this week for an Emily's List event. You talk to, to Democrats back in these states and they're like looking at Washington Democrats, like all you can do are these theatrics. Why didn't you push harder to codify Roe years ago when Democrats were in control. So I don't know who this will satisfy, but Senator Schumer seems to believe that it is going to be a consequential step. 
Mary, we got a comment from a listener, Marilyn, that says, please explain filibuster and its ramifications. If it's removed, is that only for a particular issue? If Democrats remove the filibuster, does that carry over? If Republicans take the majority, can you, because we've heard the conversation about filibuster come up again this week, Mary. So everything's negotiable, right? Like uh, you, it's a rule. It's just a rule. So you can change the rule to do a lot of different things, to be for <clears throat> for one particular issue, like they t- that was talked about a little bit with voting rights, like should we just have a filibuster, you know, change the filibuster rule for one issue and then move forward from there? Um, and the question really is, like, will it carry over? I think the fear is really if you change this rule and you make it so that the filibuster is gone and we need only 51 votes to get something through, does it create a system where we're swinging back and forth wildly, where we have Democrats in control and they're passing Democratic things and then we have Republicans in control and they're passing Republican things? I think the argument against that is that not having the filibuster forces the parties to really do the work. Like once a bill is moving through the body, you start negotiating over it. But if the bill is stuck, if you just know it's never going to get anywhere, then the advantage is just to posture and pose, which is what's happening right now. So there is certainly a risk to getting rid of the filibuster, right? You risk that if the Democrats now codify uh, abortion rights, then the Republicans get in control and they take it away. And so that's really confusing and it's chaotic. But that would also force the Republicans to take a vote that says, yes, we are going to take this away. We are, And we saw before that when it came to, for instance, the ACA, it was hard for them to do that kind of work. So why not, you know, put it to a test? After the draft opinion was leaked, President Biden promised he and his administration would be ready to fight when the final ruling came. But if Roe is overturned next month, Eva, what are the president's options here? They are limited because any executive action the White House takes could get challenged legally. So there isn't much that they can do. I would imagine uh, something that uh, we also heard uh, the first lady say as well, I think in a clip that uh, previewing uh, Simone Sanders MSNBC show, she said that uh, that that really people are going to have to lean on the states because there really isn't that much the White House can do. I think the White House officials are also discussing whether funding through Medicaid or another mechanism could be available to women who travel to other states for an abortion. But all of that is going to likely face immediate legal challenges. Speaking to reporters on Wednesday, President Biden took aim at Republicans specifically and at the idea of reversing nearly 50 years of precedent. What are the next things that are going to be attacked? Because this MAGA crowd is really the most extreme political organization that's existed in American history and recent American history. Eva, we are going to get into the midterms more deeply in a moment, but have we seen evidence of that extremism in this year's primaries? Oh, absolutely. I think that Republican primaries have been defined by the cultural battles. I've traveled to Pennsylvania on Ohio, and that is what they are all about, these issues. It's not sort of uh, bridge builder issues like infrastructure. It is uh, how the legacy and history of racism is taught, abortion. So, you know, what was surprising to me, though, about President Biden's remarks in that context is he has always preached from the gospel, I think, of bipartisanship. And to see him 
basically shift his tone, I think, is a significant transition uh, to call out, you know, the, the MAGA wing, I think, of the Republican Party. We haven't seen, I think, President Biden, at least in his presidency thus far, so aggressively uh, go on the attack. But I think it's a preview of a strategy of what's to come. Have Republicans responded to the president's statement? I know that on Fox News, uh, Sean Hannity took issue with it and said, you know, basically he is defaming all of Trump's supporters. How dare he? But, uh, you know, Republicans have tough words for Democrats as well. Politics is not uh, sort of uh, what it used to be. It is pretty brutal. So um, a little bit of hypocrisy there, I think, from Sean Hannity, who does not treat uh, President Biden with kid gloves. But yes, uh, conservatives and conservative media took issue with it. The other part is that the Republican Party at large is trying to distance itself from the extremism that the president is talking about, right? I think a really striking example of this is the talking points we've seen the NRSC, right? The the campaign arm of Republican senators put out this week. And what they say is Republicans don't want to put doctors in jail for doing abortions. And that's just flat out not true, right? When we look at the the actual laws that states are going to have in effect if and when Roe is overturned, Many of them would put doctors in prison, some for 10 years, some for life. And they would have these massive fees that doctors would have to pay, $10,000, $100,000. And I think that's just really important is that Republicans don't want to engage with this remark the president has made because, because they can't, because it's politically not a winner and they can see that. Are we also seeing on the other flip side of this, some state prosecutors saying they'll refuse to prosecute women and doctors who offer the procedure? We absolutely are seeing that. And the biggest example is Michigan, right, which has this pre-row ban on the books and the governor has challenged it. The attorney general does not want to enforce it. And a number of county prosecutors also don't. What's tricky about that is the governor and the AG both up for re-election this year. And some county prosecutors won't prosecute. Others will. And that creates right an uneven patchwork system that really means that your access depends on where you happen to live. So as we're talking about this concern, if abortion did become criminalized in some states, there's also this issue of online data collection, which could become dangerous for women seeking an abortion in secret. Can you tell us, Shafali, about some of the specific concerns here? How could technology be used? So a couple of things that folks are talking about. One is the question, right, of period tracking apps, right, and whether they could show when one becomes pregnant, whether that data is for sale. And these, we're still in the really early stages of understanding this material, so I don't want to say that we know for sure what that would look like. And at the same time, right, we do know that data is collected about who visits abortion clinics, and that is also sold. What's tricky here is, historically, states have not sought to criminalize the person seeking an abortion. They've been really careful to focus on the providers, because criminalizing a patient is just, it's a step really far that voters won't always get behind. But what's happening here is we might be seeing even that shift, right? Louisiana has put a bill out of committee going to to a full legislative body to talk about those who seek abortions being prosecuted for homicide. And if that happens, that makes these data collection risks much more scary. We're going to be talking more about that technology angle next week on 1A. At least uh, 30 states have primaries scheduled over the next two months. Eva, how are we seeing or how might this draft opinion affect those races? Well, I was at the EMILY's List gala and conference this week, and there were a lot of candidates from across the country there. EMILY's List is a 
organization that supports pro-choice Democratic women running for elected office. And I can say that this, this has really shifted the conversation for the midterms. There is a lot more energy now. And a lot of Democrats that I spoke to, they want to run on this. They feel as though this is a winning conversation for them. I'm not sh- that sure how much it will affect the primaries, but definitely the um, definitely it will be, I think, a feature of these of the general election conversation. Eva, how much do we think this will motivate Democratic voters? Because when we think about does this issue already sort of interact with the most engaged Democratic voters that already are out there when we think about college educated women, black women who are most likely to activate on this? Well, that is the argument that is certainly being made, but I think it's hard to tell. I mean, this this is uh, oh, could potentially be overturning a legal right that people have had for 50 years. You just don't know. You don't know how it it, it might motivate people. So I think to sort of dismiss it and say, oh, well, that, that's only going to impact base level Democratic voters who would show up anyway. I mean, we don't know that. This, this is... This is really a his- historic and unprecedented. We've seen the issue of abortion come up in the Democratic primary runoff in Texas between candidate Jessica Cisneros and incumbent Republican Henry Cuellar. Shivali, can you tell us how this is coming up now? Sure. So Henry Cuellar, right, is the last Democrat in the House who opposes abortion rights. Jessica Cisneros, his primary challenger, does not. She she supports abortion rights and access. This has been a really close race, right? They are entering a runoff right now, and there's a real sense that this could change the dynamic and and tip it in her favor. It's an interesting moment of splintering, though, because the party's progressive wing has really allied with Cisneros, right? You have the Justice Democrats and Elizabeth Warren behind her, and Henry Cuellar, right, has Nancy Pelosi and Representative Clyburn. These are very different and both influential wings of the party. But what's interesting about this area also is where the race is set, right? It's it's in the Valley. It's in Texas. It's in a region where there is only one abortion clinic that serves millions of people and where access has been decimated since September. And I think one has has to ask the question, does that that real lack of access for eight months now change the conversation? Does that make this even more salient as we head into a very close election? One more question I want to ask you all about Texas. If Roe versus Wade is overturned, then Texas does criminalize performing most abortions. But a poll from the University of Texas found nearly 80 percent of Texans want the procedure to be allowed in some form. Mary, what line do you see Texas Democrats having to walk on this issue then? I think that Texas Democrats, it's just been interesting to see over the last few months, right? We've had SB8 going on. And it feels almost like a little trial balloon of getting the rest of the country used to the idea that abortion could go away. And it feels like it's becoming normalized slowly. So I think for Texas Democrats, the real issue will be fighting that normalization urge and activating their voters. The issue, I think, for abortion is that, you know, this is going to be the first time the Supreme Court, if they rule in this way, will be taking a right away from a group of people, right? That's a really big deal. There are really strong arguments to be made about liberty, about bodily autonomy. And the question becomes, 
can the Democrats successfully make those arguments? And can they do it in a way that connects with voters? And I think it's a little bit of an open question right now because we haven't seen something like this happen before. So we'll just have to see. Mm-hmm. Shafali Luthra uh, is a healthcare reporter with the 19th. Shafali, thank you for joining us. Thank you. We're rounding up some of the week's biggest news. A reminder to have your questions answered on future topics or just to let us know what you think, tweet us at 1A. We'll be back with more after the break. You're listening to the News Roundup. Let's get back to the conversation. Eva, how does the issue of Roe v. Wade change the overall strategy of both Democrats and Republicans in the primary season that we're now going to be in until the midterm election this fall? Well, Senator Schumer described it this week, the majority leader, the Senate majority leader, as the defining issue now. He believes it will be the defining issue of the midterms. I'm not sure if he's right as yet. There are many other issues as well. But this gives Democrats something to rally around. Ads have already been cut, political ads with candidates in front of the Supreme Court. And now they Democrats are able to make a real contrast um, in a way that they have uh, struggled to um, in the uh, in the last few months. And then also, I think what they what we will see them do is try to make the connection to other uh, civil rights. Republicans are coming for abortion access. What's next? Uh, for instance, a young man uh, outside of the Supreme Court, uh, when I protesting Monday night, said gay marriage is going to be next. Well, I think that's an argument that we're going to hear Democrats make and uh, one that they will try to run on. To that point, we got this question from Kristen. Can you please address what other fundamental rights are at risk should the Supreme Court overturn Roe versus Wade? Mary, do we know that? Well, so here's what we know about Alito's opinion, right? Roe versus Wade, it's based in the 14th Amendment. This is an amendment that looks to get rid of the sins of chattel slavery and kind of define what it means to be free. Right. A lot of different rights are based in the 14th Amendment. We know that in this draft opinion, Alito specifically said this is about abortion only, pretty much, um, and that he sees this as a fetal rights issue, a right of the fetus. So he's seeing it in that way. However, there are so many other rights that derive themselves from the 14th Amendment that are not enumerated in the Constitution specifically. And it's kind of interesting. If you go back to the confirmation hearings for Kentonji Brown-Jackson and listen to them, you could hear how Republican senators were playing with this idea of what does the 14th Amendment actually promise? And could those rights be chipped away? They talked about things like a case called Griswold uh, that we talk about a lot, which is about contraception. Like, is contraception guaranteed under the 14th Amendment? Now, Republicans will say now, of course, we're not going to be talking about contraception. That's a guaranteed thing. However, I think (laughs) there's an issue when this opinion says that this right is not enumerated in the 14th Amendment and doesn't have a historical basis in this country. If you're saying that about one of the rights that we've derived from this amendment, what does that mean about the other rights? So I just think we don't know where it's headed. Right. And there's so much to get into this. So please make sure to tune in next week. We're going to be coming back to so many other facets of this debate surrounding Roe v. Wade. But 
The other news this week, Eva, uh, we got we had some two big, a couple big primary races. We're seeing uh, voters in Ohio and Indiana pick who they want to see face off this November. Let's start in Ohio, where there's a race for an open Senate seat. Eva, how did that race pan out? Well, Jay DeVance sailed to victory, and I can tell you I was really surprised by this. This was a crowded, brutal Republican primary. I attended one of these Republican candidate forums in Ohio a few months ago, and it looked like Josh Mandel, who had, this was his third run, had a lot of the momentum. But former President Donald Trump came in in the final hour and endorsed J.D. Vance, and that seemed to really shake up the race. And Vance's, I think, campaign was really defined by these cultural battles. He said to, on conservative media frequently, Republicans should not be afraid to talk about what he defines wrongly as critical race theory, but is really the legacy and history of how race and racism is taught in public schools, uh, trans trans rights. He leaned into those conversations. And that, I think, is what we are going to see in the general election as well. But that was a very, very crowded primary. And uh, I think former President Trump is uh, airing a, a sigh of relief that his endorsement seemed to be the defining factor in that race. Right. Earlier this week, we spoke to strategist Sarah Longwell of the Republican Accountability Project about former President Trump's influence in these primaries. I mean, if you watch primary debates among Republicans in Pennsylvania, Ohio, even 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 in Georgia, right, Trump may not have endorsed these all these candidates, but they all endorse him. Mary, when we were just talking about J.D. Vance, but how did Trump's endorsement hold up in all of the primaries we saw this week? Well, I mean, we really saw Trumpism is is still a major factor when it comes to winning these Republican primaries. I want to emphasize primaries because that's what we're talking about here. We're talking about base voters, energized Republican voters. Who are they turning out to, you know, vote for? And so then I think the question becomes, once you've gone through the primary, how is this going to hold up in the general? And of course, we won't know the answer to that until November. We kind of got this little hint this week in this Michigan race where there was a quite Trumpy guy running for the Michigan State House against a Democrat. The Democrat won. It was a a seat that had never gone to a Democrat before. Um, And so that's it's a little hint of where things might go in the general because that was a general election. But we just we don't know yet. And so we're seeing that in these primary elections, it's quite, quite important. But to your point about the base, Mike DeWine, the governor, he was an incumbent, won his GOP primary. He has criticized former President Trump. He set some restrictions in the early days of the pandemic. Is he then an exception to this rule? Yeah, well, I think it's a question of... um, how Trumpy are you, right? Because we saw Glenn Youngkin, too, kind of do this dance of not being Trumpy, but still Republican. And so, you know, I mean, DeWine is a little bit different. But I think what the, what the party is figuring out right now is how Trump curious it is, right? How much is this going to dominate what their party is? And I'm just, it, it's seriously, it's not, it's not done yet, I guess I would say. It's just, it's not finished. On the Democratic side, Eva, what can Democrats learn from this week's elections? Well, I think that they have to, I think sometimes when I speak to Democratic strategists, they say that sometimes with their messaging, they can it can feel as though they're talking at voters and not uh, in conversation with voters. So I think that that's something to take away from this. 
also that the former president is still in play uh, and still going to be a factor in these races and uh, could really uh, give uh, Republicans a boost. But the one thing that I think is noteworthy about DeWine is he he's an incumbent. And so that's why we're also not seeing that much energy, I think, around David Perdue, who Trump has endorsed in Georgia in his primary against Brian Kemp, where Brian Kemp, the governor, is favored to win that primary is, yes, the Trump endorsement is huge, but there is still power in being an incumbent. Let's move to the economy. The Federal Reserve is raising interest rates to their highest point in 22 years. On Wednesday, they announced an increase in the benchmark interest rate by half a percentage point in an attempt to combat rising inflation. I'd like to take this opportunity to speak directly to the American people. Inflation is much too high, and we understand the hardship it is causing, and we're moving expeditiously to bring it back down. We have both the tools we need and the resolve that it will take to restore price stability on behalf of American families and businesses. The economy and the country have been through a lot over the past two years and have proved resilient. It is essential that we bring inflation down if we are to have a sustained period of strong labor market conditions that benefit all. That's Federal Reserve Chairman Jerome Powell speaking on Wednesday. Mary, what kind of impact does these interest rate hikes have? So we're going to see it kind of bubble through the economy over the coming months. I mean, the one thing that is talked about right now as kind of an early indicator of the impact of these interest rates going up is the housing market, which has been so, so hot during the pandemic. And now, you know, we're seeing interest rates go from, you know, like 3% a year ago to above 5%. And that's going to cool down that housing market. So that's one place we're going to see that. But then we also look at the stock market where, you know, the stock market had a mixed reaction to this decision. You know, initially there was, you know, a rally of, you know, we're, we're excited. It wasn't higher than half a percentage point. It wasn't, you know, three quarters of a percentage point. And, uh, you know, we seemed to rally a little bit. But then the next day, I think the market kind of started to grapple with how are we going to really get inflation under control and just what a big job this is to do, how to, you know, tap the brakes on the economy without coming to a screeching halt. And you saw a plunge. So, you know, we're just going to see the economy sorting itself out really. And, you know, we'll just have to kind of wait and see where it goes. Right. I mean, we with the stock market this week, we saw its best day since 2020, followed immediately by its worst. And meanwhile, a new report out this morning by the Labor Department found the U.S. added 428,000 jobs. Eva, so the labor, department, the labor market remains strong and the demand for workers is surging. What's going on here? Well, Yes, that's the case. Uh, unemployment rate remained at 3.6 percent. Um, but, you know, a really hot job market causes inflation. And so you would think with so many people in a position to be able to find work uh, that this president wouldn't be beat up so, so bad on the economy when you ask voters about this issue. Uh, but at the end of the day, inflation sort of overshadows uh, everything, even though this uh, this jobs report actually wasn't too bad. Mary, on that jobs report, anything else we should know of note about that? No, I mean, I'm sort of I'm really interested in the fact that we're still seeing so many U.S. workers quit their jobs. I mean, we just saw this report this week, 4.5 million U.S. workers quitting their jobs in March. And it's just massive. You know, this is happening as companies are asking people to return to the office. And it looks like workers are 
saying no and I can find a better opportunity elsewhere. So I just think <laughs> we're, the labor market is in a strange place. I personally, like when I was talking about the great resignation back in November, I remember talking to an economist, Betsy Stevenson from University of Michigan, and she's like, you know, this moment won't last forever where people can just leave their jobs, you know, get on it if you're feeling like you want to leave your job. And I've just been surprised by how durable that's been, frankly. Right. So before we um, want to go to some one last economic story, um, some news on the cannabis front, a bill with bipartisan support, it's making its way through the Senate with a proposal that would allow cannabis companies to use banking services. Currently, cannabis firms are cash only, which has left them vulnerable to robberies and which some argue doesn't allow them to properly track sales. Eva, Democrats are saying they'd pass the bill if it includes provisions that would expunge marijuana convictions. What's the attitude on the Hill right now when it comes to cannabis? Well, we have just seen a remarkable shift. You know, uh, this used to be something that Democrats championed. But now that this has consequences for the economy, we see Republicans getting on board. But it doesn't go as far, I think, as many Democrats would like in terms of criminal justice reform. I know that uh, Senator Cory Booker of New Jersey, for instance, has an issue with it. And he uh, said there are not enough restorative justice provisions and he won't support it. Uh, but, yeah, there is bipartisan support for enable. Uh, enabling cannabis firms to use banking services uh, as part of this larger uh, package. And right now, President Biden could certainly use a bipartisan victory. So where do you see this going then, Eva? I I mean, I'm not I'm not prepared to say I think it will pass, but it does have a lot of support. So maybe. But don't hold me to that. <laughs> We will not hold you to that. All right. So let's end the hour with our biggest story, which is what we've been talking about this week. Mary, can I start with you and just ask what you're expecting next? Like, what are you looking at next as we see the story unfold? And we've talked about the political implications as well as the real life implications. So I'm kind of looking to see how states respond in this moment, because, you know, we've seen one state, Connecticut, really go out there and say, we want to preserve the right to an abortion. And not just preserve the right to an abortion, but make ourselves a safe haven for people who need abortion care. So this just passed and is about to be signed into law there. And it's a really interesting forward-looking bill that I find both really disturbing because it imagines an America where one state like Texas might pursue charges against someone in Connecticut having to do with their abortion. That's really, really dark stuff. But it also seems very forward-looking. It's like kind of two steps ahead in the three-dimensional chess of abortion politics. So when this bill first went through, I spoke to the, um, the representative who authored it, and he said some people thought he was a little paranoid for putting a bill like this out there. But then when he saw the decision you know, the opinion that, you know, is a draft right now, he realized like, no, I, I was right here to, force, to foresee that Roe is going to fall and that we need to be thinking about, okay, what does that mean for a state like Connecticut? How do we protect our providers here? How do we protect our people here? How do we make sure we're a place that's safe? And in some ways, you know, this is a blue state. This is a place where it might be expensive to travel from um, a red state where you can't access abortion to go there. So it's just really one state. I'm really curious to see if 
bills like this spread, especially spread closer to states that are going to have more restrictive laws about abortion. Comment from Doug in Indiana. I think the Democrats have been remiss in not creating laws to legalize abortion. They had 50 years to do it and no one to blame but themselves for not getting it done. Eva, um, we're almost out of time, but really quickly, what are you paying attention to here? Well, I'm interested to know the implications of this. If the Supreme Court does, in fact, move in this direction, how far reaching is this? Does this also include non-surgical abortions like abortion pills? And then I'm also interested to see what organizers do. You know, Democrats in Washington have not been able to deliver. Well, what about organizers? Uh, I know that there is a May 14th, a bans off our bodies day of action. There are going to be protests all across the country. Uh, Can that actually uh, shift outcome or lead to new legislation? Eva McKend covers national politics for CNN. Mary Harris hosts the Slate Daily News podcast, What Next? Mary, Eva, thank you. One A's audio engineer and sound designer is Mike Kidd. He gets technical assistance from Adrian Danhauser. Aileen Humphreys is the producer and editor of One A On Demand. Chris Castano is our digital editor. You're listening to the News Roundup. We'll discuss the week's biggest headlines from around the world in just a moment. This is One A. Every week, we set aside this hour to focus on what's been going on overseas. And of late, some of the guests we most often hear from on Fridays are also in the field, reporting on some of the world's biggest stories. In total, 75% of all residential buildings here in Irpine were either damaged or destroyed. But here's the thing. Irpine held. Ukrainian forces here prevented Russian forces from going down the road only about 15 miles to central Kyiv. And that was in large part thanks to American weapons. That's Nick Schifrin from the PBS NewsHour reporting from Ukraine. That's where we'll start again, but we have news also from China, Canada, Europe, and Northern Ireland. Joining us from Washington to talk about the latest international news is Robbie Grammer, diplomacy and national security reporter at Foreign Policy. Robbie, great to have you back on The Roundup. Great to be here. Laura Seligman also joins us from Washington. She covers the Pentagon for Politico. Good to have you back, Laura. Thanks so much for having me. And David Rennie is the Beijing bureau chief for The Economist. He joins us today from the Chinese capital. Hi, David. Hello. Ukraine's President Zelensky released a video Wednesday night after the successful evacuation of hundreds of civilians from the besieged city of Mariupol. Zelensky is saying a total of 344 people were rescued from the city and surrounding area. That's how many people left for Zaporizhia today. Our team is preparing to meet them in the same way as more than 150 people who managed to be taken out of the Avstovol. All of them will get the help they need. All of them will receive the utmost care from our state. That translation is from NBC News. Robbie, how were the civilians able to safely evacuate the city? Because this has preoccupied people for months now. Yeah, I mean, Mariupol, this is a city that's that's been under siege from from Russian forces under bombardment for for weeks. Um, and the the reason that these civilians were able to to be rescued is is because of um, convoys that the UN has set up. Um, so these are UN led rescue operations. Um, under a ceasefire between the Russian forces that control most of the city um, and the the limited remaining Ukrainian forces who, with, with the remaining civilians, are, are taking shelter and, and holding out in this sprawling steel industrial complex um, um, in this part of the city. 
Um, so as, as Zelensky said, there, there were several hundred civilians um, that were rescued. Um, there's going to be a new UN convoy attempting to rescue some more civilians that are holding out in that complex um, this evening. Um, but the ceasefire at this point is shaky. So, so it's unclear how, um, how these convoys can get through if they're able to or if they can get these civilians out. It's still uh, very much up in the air. The Kremlin has denied reports that Russian troops stormed this steel plant through tunnels this week. The Russian military had committed to a daytime ceasefire from Thursday to Saturday. David, why has this ceasefire been so hard to track? There's a total lack of trust uh, between the Ukrainian defenders and the Russians. Some of the Ukrainian defenders have said explicitly that they will not do uh, any deal with the Russians about a ceasefire because they know that this is a trap. Um, there's, it's very difficult for outsiders to get information and uh, the Russians uh, have been accused of firing. Only today, they, the Ukrainians uh, said that the Russians had fired in a car that was part of the evacuations. Uh, the Russians say they didn't storm the complex, that they haven't been firing on civilians. And remember that the big picture of this is that this is not just any fight. This is one of the most acute kind of political propaganda clashes uh, that we've seen to date. Not only has this siege in Mariupol gone on a very long time. Not only is Mariupol an incredibly important port city that would give Russia a land bridge uh, from the territory that it seized in 2014 in the Crimea all the way up to the east of the country that it wants to take over completely. But it's also a Russian-speaking area, and the defenders in that steel plant are the Azov Battalion, the Azov uh, Regiment, who are accused by the Russians of being neo-Nazis. This is one of their key pieces of information that their propaganda says that Ukraine is basically a nest of Nazis. It is true that some of those defenders have a past uh, which involved them in, in, in some pretty nasty far-right politics, but this is now a confrontation between these uh, these last defenders in this enormous sort of almost city-sized steelworks uh, and the Russians who want to say that this is the worst of the worst kind of Nazis they're fighting. So at every level, this is not just a nasty fight, but there is such ideological confrontation, such propaganda value to this fight, and so little trust that this is infinitely harder than just getting civilians out of a nasty conflict area. Robbie, what do we know about the conditions inside the steel plant? And do we know how many civilians are still left? Well, I, as David said, it's it's difficult to get precise numbers because of the Russian uh, siege surrounding the, this last uh, area of the city of this last pocket of Ukrainian resistance. Um, what we do know, you know, that these some of these commanders have have been in contact with senior Ukrainian leaders um, and their families. You know, the conditions are very grim. Um, this the civilians still trapped there. You know, are you know, underground, you know, have been facing bombardment for months, um, you know, running out of supplies and provisions. So so it's really a race against time for, for these UN-led convoys to try to rescue the civilians. Um, and at, at this point, you know, the, the Ukrainian uh, defenders, the, the military in, in that complex said they that they're not going to surrender. Um, but it's, it's really unclear how much longer they, they can hold out. Um, and as David mentioned, you know, um, this is really important, and and you could see Russia trying to step up efforts to snuff out Ukrainian resistance here because um, Putin is coming up on a big date, May 9th, which is the commemoration, a major Russian holiday that commemorates uh, the Soviet victory over Nazis in World War II. Um, and Putin's under a lot of pressure to show some form of win um, in this fight in Ukraine. Lara, President Zelensky asked U.N. Secretary General Antonio Guterres to assist in the evacuation of wounded soldiers and civilians from the steel plant. What's been the U.N.'s role in Mariupol so far? 
Well, like Robbie said, uh, the civilians are being rescued right now by UN convoys, and there should be some more convoys coming here shortly. But I just want to take a step back here and give you um, an operational picture from the Pentagon perspective of what's going on in Mariupol and beyond. Um, the majority of Russian troops actually have left Mariupol at this point and are moving north toward the Donbass region. In fact, defense officials believe that Russia's aim is to encircle Ukrainian troops in the Donbass from the northeast and the south out of Mariupol. But the interesting thing here is that as, of course, Mariupol is still getting bombarded, actually Russian forces are making slower progress than they had expected in the Donbass due to continued logistics challenges and morale issues. Now, this is something that is is being talked about a lot because the Russians are clearly learning from their mistakes that they made in Kiev, where they got out far ahead of their supply lines and were unable to replenish their equipment. So now in, in the Donbass um, and coming out of Mariupol, they are being very careful not to get out ahead of the supply lines. But of course, that means they can only go a few kilometers per day. And then, of course, they're also having morale issues because, as David and Robbie spoke about earlier, the conscripts conscripts are being fed a lot of propaganda about who it is they're fighting. And then when they arrive in Ukraine, they actually meet stiff resistance from the Ukrainians that they, they did not expect. So there's still this bombardment of Mariupol going on, but actually the fight now is really moving toward the Donbass, particularly as Putin, as Robbie said, takes uh, the opportunity to set the stage for declaring a victory in Mariupol on May 9th for Victory Day. Robbie, can you just explain that May 9th victory? That's Russia's Victory Day holiday. Can you explain the significance of this? Yeah, the, this is this is the holiday commemorating um, the the victory over over Nazi Germany in World War II. Um, it's and you know it's it's always been a big part of of Russian. Um, identity, but in recent years, increasingly, Putin has politicized this holiday um, and and used it to stir up nationalistic fervor. Um, and and this year, it's it's expected to be uh, even more important, obviously, because of this war in Ukraine. Um, and everything about this war in Ukraine has these um, misguided and falsified parallels in the Russian eyes to to World War II. They're falsely accusing the Ukrainians of of being run by Nazis, controlled by the West. Um, of you know, they're trying to to say that they're liberating Eastern Ukraine from from fascism, um, um, despite all of the atrocities that they're that they're denying that Russian forces committed against Ukrainian civilians. So. So this holiday, um, while it was always important, while it always had nationalistic uh, overtones, um, this May 9th in particular is going to be incredibly important for Putin to try to rally up more support in Russia for this war that isn't going quite as well as he had hoped. Um, and, and you could also see some significant policy announcements there. Um, some analysts are expecting Putin to announce a mass mobilization of the military um, to to be uh, uh, directed to Ukraine, um, and others see him, you know, trying to declare some sort of uh, final victory in in eastern Ukraine or in Mariupol, um, even if the fighting's not over, just so he can have some sort of propaganda coup to show for his for his population on this on this holiday. Laura, we just have about a minute before the break, but what is the Pentagon saying about how this could affect Russia's military strategy this weekend, this Victory Day? Well, certainly, as Robbie said, this is has potential to 
have Vladimir Putin now mobilize the entire Russian army and really go after Ukraine and and try to get this victory that has so far eluded him. Of course, the Pentagon has been saying for some time that Russia is really not achieving its goals, surprisingly, in, in Ukraine, and particularly in the Donbass as they face these logistical and morale challenges. But so that's why you see right now Russia really stepping up its attacks on supply lines and electricity grids and rails in attempts to try to disrupt Ukrainian supply lines. So we're definitely going to see the fight getting more intense there in the Donbass. Ukrainian forces are pushing Russians out of the city of Kharkiv, according to a senior U.S. defense official. Russian forces have been expelled from several villages that were used to strike the second most populous city in the country. Robbie, briefly, can you share with us why Russia struggled to make advances here? Yeah, I mean, it's it goes back to exactly what, what Lara was saying. I mean, the the Russian military, despite having power by numbers, is is being beaten back by outgunned and out, outmanned Ukrainian forces here with, you know, through a combination of poor tactics, low morale, limited training, poorly maintained gear. Um, and what you're seeing in Kharkiv is is the the perfect encapsulation of the of this of of Russia's military in in a way being a paper tiger. Um, the Ukrainian forces are ousting Russians. Um, the latest news is from villages on the outskirts of Kharkiv, and, and it appears the goal from the Ukrainian side is to push the Russians back to points beyond the city where their artillery can no longer hit Kharkiv to try to carve out a protective bubble around the city to halt the strikes on, on this city, which is a major industrial and, and transportation hub for, for Ukraine and eastern Ukraine. And and if Ukraine is able to to take back and consolidate control around Kharkiv, this could really disrupt Russia's ability to take full control of, of this Donbass region in eastern Ukraine. Meanwhile, several key U.S. officials are continuing to visit Ukraine and the surrounding region. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi visited Kyiv last Sunday. First Lady Jill Biden is on a trip to Romania and Slovakia and will visit with Ukrainian refugee families on Mother's Day. She spoke about this from New York's Metropolitan Museum of Art earlier this week. As a mother myself, I can only imagine the grief the families are feeling. I know that we might not share a language, but I hope that I can convey in ways so much greater than words that their resilience inspires me. David, to what extent has the presence of American political leadership in the region helped galvanize Ukraine's war effort? Well, there's a morale function to having a stream of world leaders. Remember, it's not just uh, the Speaker, Nancy Pelosi, uh, and her congressional delegation. We've also had uh, the Secretary of State, Anthony Blinken. We had Lloyd Austin, the Defense Secretary. They follow this well-worn route now uh, to go in by train and to meet uh, President Zelensky in a bunker in Kiev. I should say that the editor of The Economist was a couple of weeks ahead of them on the same route, but um, she's perhaps uh, less busy than they are. Um, but we've also had, you know, we've had uh, we've had Boris Johnson, the British Prime Minister, striding around the streets of Kiev with President Zelensky. And part of this is about morale, showing that he is not isolated, showing that he has uh, the world, at least the Western world, on his side. It's also about the politics of the incredible amount of arms and equipment that Western governments are sending in. And it's not just, you know, low level stuff. Uh, the Americans, the British, any number of these uh, Western countries have sent in some of their most advanced kind of portable weapons that have been taking out Russian tanks, taking out, uh, you know, Russian uh, armored vehicles. You've seen the Biden uh, administration asking Congress to earmark $33 billion, $20 billion of which will be for military aid. And that is uh, double 
what America has given to date. So you see that Zelensky is also a genius at doing these satellite broadcasts into parliaments all around the world. He's got a kind of flair for you know, presenting himself as the representative of this nation. Remember, he comes out of this, he was originally an actor, originally a comedian, but he has now really sort of taken on this role as the representative of his embattled nation. A sign of his flair for kind of showbiz, uh, one of the last big leaders who has not visited is the German Chancellor, uh, uh, Olaf Scholz. And Zelensky has said, well, why don't you come on Victory Day that we were talking about, May the 9th, when that is not just in Russia, but the whole of the Soviet Union celebrates the end of World War II, what an incredible symbol that would be. And Zelensky just calling on the Germans to visit on that day shows how he understands the incredible importance of these visits from politicians. To your point, uh, David, about the role of American weaponry, there were new reports that surfaced this week about the role U.S. intelligence has been playing in Ukraine. Senior U.S. officials told the New York Times that information from the U.S. has helped Ukrainians target and kill several Russian generals. Since Russia has invaded Ukraine, around 12 Russian generals have been killed on the front lines. But there's been some strong pushback from the Pentagon to this reporting. Lara, as with all stories tied to intelligence, some of these details can get murky. What were the takeaways from you when this story first appeared in The Times on Wednesday? So this was a really interesting story to watch. And then there was also the news last night that the U.S. shared intelligence with Ukraine that helped sink the Russian cruiser, the Moskva. Um, and even more so than the generals, this was one of the most embarrassing episodes so far for Putin in this conflict. This cruiser was the flagship of Russia's Black Sea fleet, and it, it sank on April 14th after being struck by Ukrainian missiles, although, of course, Moscow said it sank in a fire. Um, so the Pentagon has had similar responses to both of those two instances. Um, basically, with the ship, the U.S. officials said that they did not know in advance that Ukraine was going to target the ship, only that they shared intelligence about its whereabouts to help Ukraine defend itself. In fact, Pentagon Press Secretary John Kirby made the rounds on the morning news shows today um, saying basically that exact same thing. We did not provide specific targeting information about the ship. We weren't involved in their decision to conduct that strike. And that is similar to what Kirby said yesterday at the Pentagon about the New York Times story that about the general that you reference. Um, so basically my takeaway was that the U.S. provide, the, the official response anyway, is that the U.S. provides battlefield intelligence to help U Ukraine defend its country. And that we've known for a while, but they do not provide intelligence on specific intelligence on the location of senior military leaders or participate in the targeting decisions of the Ukrainian military. Like you said, though, that it is a bit murky and it is very nuanced. So if you say here is a bunch of intelligence, a bunch of battlefield pictures, this is where the ship is, this is where XYZ is, but you're not involved in saying, okay, take that intelligence and go and use it to destroy that ship. That technically fits within what Kirby was saying while sort of giving the U.S. an out to say this was not our decision. So definitely very murky picture in there. But I think it's clear that the United States is providing Ukraine very, very specific intelligence that it can use to then do these tactical operations to hurt Russia. So, Laura, we've heard the U.S. talk very publicly about weapons and weapons that are being shared. The intelligence part of this has been pretty quiet up until this point. I think I think that's 
true, the specific intelligence piece about it. But I do think we have heard in recent weeks general general discussion about this topic. I mean, of course, we are sharing the intelligence with Ukrainians. That's what John Kirby said yesterday. Of course, we are sharing battlefield intelligence to help them. And this is the nuance to help them defend their country. But of course, that's a very murky nuance. The other thing that has been talked about is how we are helping the Ukrainians use commercially available uh, surveillance that is out there um, by uh, certain commercial uh, companies like um, like Marsat, I believe, is one of them. And this is satellite information that is publicly available that you can buy. And Ukraine has been using some of that for its its battlefield to get its full battlefield picture as well. Now, the amount that they're using commercially available satellite data versus particular specific U.S. intelligence from U.S. military satellites and U.S. military drones. That's not completely clear yet. I think it's I think it's safe to say, though, that we are providing them a good amount of detailed imagery and um, imagery and intelligence of that sort. Let's move on to Europe and the decision by the European Union to cut itself off from Russian oil. This is a big move with many members still heavily dependent on energy exports from Russia. The president of the European Commission is Ursula von der Leyen. We will make sure that we phase out Russian oil in an orderly fashion. Putin wanted to wipe out Ukraine from the map. And he will clearly not succeed. On the contrary, Ukraine has risen in bravery and in unity. And it is his own country, Russia, that Putin is sinking. Robbie, what more do we know about this EU plan and who's supporting it in terms of members of the bloc? Yeah, this, this is part of this broad strategy by the U.S. and, and EU to tighten the economic noose around Russia um, in reprisal for the war. Um, as, as Laura mentioned, Western countries, the U.S., are sending military aid, providing intelligence to Ukrainian forces, but they won't become directly involved in the war, wary of it spilling over into other countries. Um, so this is the biggest move to date. Um, I think most Western policymakers agree that that if you want to really hit Putin where it hurts economically, you target oil and gas. Um, the, the problem is that EU's already hit a roadblock here. Um, Hungary, um, led by Viktor Orban, who's seen as as one of the most uh, friendly European leaders with uh, with Vladimir Putin and who's been criticized for dismantling some uh, institutions of Hungary's democracy, um, has said no to this plan, has said um, we're not ready to, to phase out um, oil on the timeline that the EU has put forward. So they've hit a roadblock. Um, there's some behind the scenes negotiations going on right now within the EU to try to to try to smooth things out. Um, the plan that, that the EU outlined so far was to phase out crude oil um, from Russia in the next six months and refined oil products in the next year. Um, the EU has already agreed on phasing out Russian coal, um, but that was much easier because uh, the EU is less reliant on coal than on oil and gas. Um, I think it's worth saying that that oil, um, a, a ban on oil will be much easier than a ban on gas because um, the EU relies more heavily on Russian gas imports than oil imports. Um, and and it's also worth saying, you know, this is all occurring in the summer when the energy needs are naturally a lot less, a lot less high. So, um, what you know, it remains to be seen whether this most EU solidarity over banning Russian energy um, can be maintained as as the weather gets colder and, and demand for energy goes up in, into the winter. 
David, so what is Europe's energy plan B here if the idea is that Russian oil is being phased out for the EU by the end of the year? Well, one of the things that's complicated about this is that not only do all 27 members of the European Union have to agree this sanctions plan, but you can't really talk about Europe being dependent on Russia in the same way. There are enormous differences. So at one end, you have countries like France, uh, which has you know, for years had a nuclear power plant uh, set up so that it has independence from, from almost anyone else's energy needs. Uh, you then have countries like Germany, which chose against the advice of allies like America to deepen their dependence in recent years on Russian gas because it was cheap and it helped their industries uh, become more competitive. And so you saw rows, uh, which listeners will remember about the Americans, several different American administrations saying to the Germans, why are you building new pipelines that increase your dependence on Russian gas, like the Nord Stream pipeline, which has now, in fact, just been blocked in one of the big changes of German policy. But then you've got countries that used to be part of the Soviet bloc, uh, countries like not just Hungary we talked about, but Slovakia, uh, the Czech Republic, uh, Poland. Any of their energy infrastructure that is older than 1989 basically is Soviet-era infrastructure, and you won't be surprised to know that that is pipes heading straight into Russia to pick up Russian oil and gas. And so, you know, a country like Bulgaria... Uh, two-thirds of their energy needs come from a single oil refinery, which is owned by a Russian company, Lukoil. They have one nuclear power plant, which generates a third of the entire country of Bulgaria's electricity. That runs on uranium from Russia, because these are all legacies of decades of Soviet domination. So in some ways, it's more courageous for Eastern European countries like the Poles to be saying, OK, we need to break ourselves this dependence, uh, than it is the countries that chose to be dependent, like Germany. The final problem for America in this is that we've seen President Biden on some of his visits to Europe uh, when he came to summits in Brussels, you know, saying that America is absolutely going to help offset these losses of Russian oil and gas. And he's particularly talking about things like ships full of liquefied natural gas, which is everyone's kind of go to solution when you need a quick fix for energy. But there just is a finite amount of this gas in the world. And so America's been making promises that it's going to help Europe source this stuff, but a whole bunch of countries are trying to source this stuff. And remember, it's at a time when, in part because of this war, energy prices around the entire world are absolutely soaring. And I know we're talking about Europe, but we shouldn't forget to mention that in the developing world, places like Africa, their energy prices are going through the roof because of this war so far away in Ukraine, and that's going to cause real human suffering. And so this is going to be a story that drags on long before this small but important dispute in Brussels about sanctions on Russian energy. That's a good point, David. On Tuesday, we found out about an important development concerning WNBA star Brittany Griner, who's been in custody in Russia for more than two months. The State Department now considers her to be, quote, wrongfully detained by the Russian government. NPR's Tom Goldman told Morning Edition there's growing doubt that the charges she faces are legitimate. Someone inside the WNBA pointed out to me, Griner has played in Russia since 2014. She would know the risks in a country with tough drug laws. So if the allegation is fraudulent, why then would she be, as the State Department now says, wrongfully detained? It's not hard to believe a high-profile person like her could be used as a political pawn. She was taken into custody right before Russia's invasion of Ukraine. But again, the government not divulging. Laura, how does this reclassification by the State Department affect the chances of Griner being allowed to come home? 
Well, that's a really interesting strategy shift on the part of the State Department, and it suggests that the U.S. is now going to take a more aggressive steps to bring her home. The State Department had previously indicated it would wait for her case to proceed through Russia's legal system, but wrongful detainment is an official designation and indicates the United States is no longer going to wait. Now, just for background, um, like you said, Greiner is a seven, seven-time WNBA All-Star, two-time Olympic gold medalist, um, so she's certainly would, it seems, would know the, the rules about uh, about this kind of thing. And she was arrested at an airport outside of Moscow in February. Allegedly, she illegally brought vape cartridges containing hashish oil, I believe, into the country. And this is a crime that could put her in prison for up to 10 years. Now, she's not formally been charged, but uh, she is scheduled to have another court hearing in May. Now, it's unclear exactly what prompted the State Department shift, um, but it certainly is a, a good development, and it suggests there might be something that the United States has in the works for getting her out. Or potentially, there it's possibly a bad sign that officials have found something wrong with her case in Russia. But one thing is for sure, it has certainly raised the public profile of her case, and that often goes a long way toward helping um, put the pressure on both Russia and the United States to, to bring someone like her home. Remembrances were paid this week to Regine, who is credited with inventing the modern disco scene. She described herself as the queen of the night, setting up her first club in Paris before going international. Her clubs attracted the young and beautiful. Andy Warhol, Brooke Shields, and Joan Collins were all regulars. Mick Jagger was once turned away at the door for wearing sneakers. Regine was 92. China's capital city is tightening COVID restrictions. This week, 60 subway stations were closed in Beijing. That's more than 10 percent of the city's entire transit system. Beijing's also closed gyms, bars and restaurants and indefinitely suspended classes for students. A growing number of communities in China are currently under lockdown. David, how are these restrictions impacting life in China and for you in Beijing? I mean, look, it's been a long time. We've been at this for, for you know, two and, a, two and a bit years. I haven't left China since December 2019. Uh, uh, people are really tired of this. And for a long time last year, uh, China was pretty optimistic that it had done something that countries like America hadn't managed to do. They had managed to somehow lock COVID out of China's borders. And by paying a lot of, you know, a high price in human terms at the beginning of 2020, at the beginning of the pandemic, when we had, you know, weeks of very tight lockdown, Last year, life was more or less normal. What went wrong was the Omicron variant. It's just so much more contagious than the previous main variant that was around Delta. And China's methods are to you know, find any outbreak, any sick person, test them, and then everyone they've met gets locked away. And that worked with Delta. But with Omicron, it's just spreading so fast that the most shocking thing we've seen over the last couple of months is China's richest city, its most outward-facing worldly city, Shanghai, 25 million people in that city, parts of which could be Manhattan or Paris if you were visiting. They have been locked inside their homes or now inside their housing compounds for a month. There are people going hungry because they cannot get food in China's richest city. Now, here in Beijing, the stakes are even more sharp for the Communist Party leadership because not only is Beijing the other giant city, it's 22 million people where I am, but it's where the bosses live. It's where the emperor used to live. This is the most symbolic kind of citadel of power. And the controls on getting into Beijing have been very, very strict for a long time. Uh, it was almost impossible to get in from any bit of China that had a single case of COVID. Now here in Beijing, 
We're getting 50, 60 cases a day. So by American standards, very small numbers. But that is against their policy, which is to have as close to zero as possible. And the other reason that the communist leadership is trapped is that they put all of their effort into locking this disease out of China and then locking it down when they find it. And the usual exit strategies we're seeing around the rest of the world, which are basically give everyone you can the best vaccine you can, they haven't done here. So two big things they haven't done. They have not ever approved a foreign vaccine. So the Pfizer's, the Moderna's, they are not used there. They only use Chinese vaccines. That's what I have in my arm. They're not great vaccines. They're not terrible, but they're not nearly as good as the, the more modern mRNA vaccines. And the old people have not been vaccinated in anything like the numbers that you need. And that frightens China because they saw in Hong Kong, uh, right down the south end of China, they had a sudden Omicron outbreak at the turn of the year. And almost all the people who died there, about 10,000 people tragically died in Hong Kong, almost all of them were unvaccinated old people. You scale that up to a country where I am with 1.4 billion people, if they let rip in the way that America currently is, you could have easily a million dead people you know, a lot of them old, unvaccinated people. And that'd be a catastrophic blow to this kind of propaganda story that China has been telling for two years, that countries like America are these kind of zombie movies of horror and chaos and selfishness and dysfunction, and that the Communist Party-led China is the safest place in the world. And right now, that strategy is being tested to breaking point by Omicron raging all around where I am. Yeah, it's a certainly a catastrophic idea also. David, are people in Beijing worried uh, looking to Shanghai and the lockdowns and preparing for that? Uh, are my cupboards full of an extraordinary amount of pasta and tins of tomato? They are. And everyone you talk to is worried about, you know, not only that, but we've seen in other cities in China, uh, if you test positive in one of these mass tests that we, you know, we've had to do three mass tests this week. Everyone in the city had to get mass tested. We've just been told that tomorrow, Sunday and Monday, we all have to get mass tested again. And that's not nothing, because when you go and have the swab put down your throat in these mass tests, if you are found to be positive, they will come in those kind of white astronaut suits, take you from your home and put you against your will in a quarantine clinic. If you have kids, you have had parents and children separated. You've had videos of wailing babies and toddlers who have no idea where they are, whose parents don't know where they are because they were separated by the authorities. I have two cats. People are very worried who have pets that if you test positive in some Chinese cities, uh, they've decided to go into their apartments while the, while the owners are in quarantine and club their pets to death because they think they might spread the virus. So everyone is sharing messages about if I get quarantine, will you take my cat? Will you take my dog? Where do I send it? It's crazy that we're in this kind of modern, very advanced city in many ways. And we don't know whether we could be dragged out of our own homes and separated from families and maybe lose our animals. And, and that kind of it's it's a shock anywhere. But, you know, this is a country that was thinking it was doing so, so well. And it's so political here because this is all about the Communist Party saying it's superior to Western democracies. That means there is almost no room for kind of just scientific debate about maybe this strategy needs to change. Maybe Omicron needs to change the strategy. And we saw the highest ruling body, the Standing Committee of the Politburo, come out this week and say that it is totally unacceptable to even question this policy. So something that should be a question of science has become a question of pure politics in Beijing, the most political city in this one-party dictatorship. And that is a bad recipe. Robbie, to David's point, how much of this is because of the politics of this in terms of the National Congress of the Chinese Communist Party and what's coming up this fall for Xi Jinping? 
Yeah, I mean, just just as David said, I mean, she has hinged a lot of a lot of his, you know, this country's state legitimacy, which took a bad hit for for mishandling the initial outbreak of the pandemic that that eventually led to the spread of the of the pandemic on a global scale. Um, you know, the the Chinese Communist Party has been, you know, pointing to Western democracies and saying, look at how they've made a mess of this pandemic response, unlike us. Um, and now that's that's basically a, a, all gone up in in smoke, and she has backed himself into a corner by by constantly bandying that this zero COVID strategy that that they can't really pull out of. Um, I th- I think it's going to be a major issue um, um, ahead of the upcoming Congress, and it be, just because it's taken such a, a big economic and toll on on China. I mean, urban youth employment in China has spiked to sixteen percent already, almost double pre pandemic levels because of this constant uncertainty and interruption and, and draconian crackdown and attempt to get ahead of the virus. Um, and and you know. It, it, even setting aside the virus, China's economy was was already on the path to slow down because of its own crackdown on its tech sectors. Um, you know, Western sanctions on on Chinese companies over the um, uh, what it calls the genocide against uh, Muslim minorities in Western China. Um, so, so even when you set aside the pandemic, um, China is is starting to struggle economically, and and if it's a long way off from a recession, it's it's clearly dealing with economic stagnation on on a national scale now that that's going to be really difficult for the uh, for the party to try to navigate through. We would be remiss if we did not talk about the big story in America this week, the leaked draft from the Supreme Court, which did not go unnoticed outside the U.S. For example, if Roe versus Wade is overturned, Canadian officials have made it clear that people seeking abortions in the U.S. are welcome to come north. Here's Canada's Minister of Families, Children and Social Development, Karina Gould, responding to this question on the CBC. In response to the the leaking of the draft uh, opinion from the Supreme Court, the prime minister tweeted, the right to choose is a woman's right and a woman's right alone. Every woman in Canada has a right to a safe and legal abortion. We'll never back down from protecting and promoting women's rights in Canada and around the world. On that last part, and around the world, I think it has some heightened significance today. Will your government ensure American women who want to can come to Canada for an abortion? That's a really good question. I mean, I don't see why we would not. I mean, if they people come here and need access, certainly, um, you know, that's a service that would be provided. We want to make sure that we're still uh, able to provide those services as needed to Canadian women. Laura, how likely are we to see Americans leaving the country for abortions if Roe versus Wade were to be struck down? Well, so first, I I would be remiss if I I didn't say this was Politico that broke the story. And we, of course, don't reveal our sources. But what I can say is that our reporters did their due diligence in authenticating the document. And we make clear that this is a draft and the decision still could change. We'll just have to wait and see. As far as Americans leaving the country, I, I think this is a distinct possibility. If this decision goes through, I think it would have ramifications across the country. Many, many states are going to, you're going to see them impose really restrictive abortion laws. Texas, places like Texas, Mississippi already have these really restrictive laws. And I think that this is only going to continue if if the, a decision like this um, goes forward. Another interesting thing to watch um, from my perspective at the Pentagon is the implication for women in the military. Um, service women seeking an abortion already face 
a lot of restrictions the same way many women do across these more conservative states. Abortions cannot be performed at military medical facilities, and the troops' TRICARE health insurance does not cover the procedure at private facilities because of what's called the Hyde Amendment that prohibits the use of federal dollars for abortion unless in rare circumstances when the life of the mother is at stake. The big problem for military women in particular is that they don't always get a say in what state they're stationed in, of course. So let's say they're stationed at a remote base in Texas. They would not easily be able to obtain an abortion in another state. So I think this has implications across the board for service women, women in conservative states, women in liberal states, and we may indeed see women going outside of the United States in the future to get the medical care that they need. Laura, that's a very interesting point about the Pentagon. Did had I mean about military women? Has the Pentagon said anything about that this week? So in recent days, the Pentagon press secretary, John Kirby, he has been asked about what this means for women in the service and recruitment in particularly. Uh, basically, the question is, is this another hurdle the military is going to have to overcome when trying to recruit women to serve? Already, already you're, there's a lot of hurdles for, for the Pentagon in recruiting women. But of course, Kirby would not touch this question with a 10-fold poll. I think they are staying out of it until such time as there has been a decision. We're talking to Politico's Laura Seligman, David Rennie from The Economist from Beijing, and Robbie Grammer from Foreign Policy. I'm Nyla Boodoo. This is 1A. So thinking about the idea of this leak on Monday attracting global attention, Robbie, what kind of response have we seen from outside the U.S. to the news? You know, I, I think, you know, what uh, Western countries such as Canada um, have come out and reaffirmed their support for access to abortion. Um, I think it's worth noting that uh, even if American women are, are allowed to go to Canada, if, if this decision does does go through, that takes time and money. And that, of course, um, you know, has significant implications for women, you know, in more rural areas who may be poor, um, don't have the resources um, and, you know, aren't able to, to take a trip up to up to Canada if, if they um, depending on what state they live in. Um, it's worth noting that that this this also goes against the grain of, of broader trend in uh, in abortion policies across the world over the past quarter century, where you've seen a lot more countries, um, uh, not only in the you know North American Europe, but out elsewhere in in Africa and in South America, relax their restrictions on abortion. Some um, in Latin America have just recently either decriminalized or legalized abortion, and so. If this decision does go through um, and some of these states that are um, more anti-abortion start pushing forward their own legislation, um, it's going to be the, you know, the United States going going back in time while the rest of the world moves forward. Right. David, I wanted to ask you that because to um, the, the to that point, last year, Mexico's Supreme Court ruled that getting an abortion isn't a crime. It's one of several Latin American countries that made it easier to access abortion. Colombia, Argentina, Uruguay, for example. David, is it fair to say the U.S. is going in an opposite direction than the rest of the hemisphere? Well, I think what's so interesting about the comparison with Latin America is that these are very religious countries. So if you're comparing the debate in America to the debate in, say, Britain uh, or France or the Netherlands, you're comparing a much more religious country, America, with basically post-religious, very, very secular Western European countries. But Latin America is fascinating because, as you say, in the last year, uh, most recently in February this year, Colombia's Supreme Court uh, up, uh, upheld the idea that it was unconstitutional uh, to ban abortion. 
And these are very religious countries. So they're in some ways, they're more similar to America than Western Europe is. What I think is also fascinating is the point that Robbie made about how uh, you're certainly going to see people argue that this is going to be toughest on the poorest uh, who can't afford to just take a trip up to Canada to get an abortion. So poor people, young people, single mothers, uh, people in rural areas. That is precisely the winning argument advanced by the pro-choice movement in Colombia. When they won their massive court victory in February this year, they argued that it was against Colombia's constitution because it was discriminating against women, not just the poor and the rural, but women who live in kind of areas where there's uh, fighting because you still have kind of guerrilla fighting in Colombia. And that argument won in Colombia. And I'm sure that we're going to see, you know, America, perhaps even activists wondering whether, you know, they're going to have to return to this using a different part of the constitution. Uh, clearly, the American constitution is different from other people's. But nonetheless, you're seeing all of these arguments that have been, you know, really sweeping away abortion laws uh, in Europe and, and Latin America, uh, it's looking so, so different uh, in the U.S. Big thanks to the Beijing bureau chief uh, for The Economist, David Rennie, also Laura Seligman from Politico and Robbie Grammer from Foreign Policy. 1A's managing producer is Paige Osborne. Jonquilin Hill is our senior producer. My kid is our sound designer and engineer. And Barb Aguiano produces our podcast. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm Nyla Boodoo from Axios Today. This is 1A.